Well, it's a privilege to get to share with you this morning. Uh, uh, one thing I like about the church is Jeff's biblical preaching and the passion with which he preaches. So we're definitely in prayer for he and his family this morning. Uh, before we uh, come to the text, let's, let's do bow together in prayer. Father, we ask today as we celebrate the uh, work you've done throughout history, especially in the Reformation, Father, we want to uh, just honor your word and the way you work through it. And then today, Father, as we talk about by faith alone, now help us to take a look at our lives and, and how we live before you. And we do want to pray for our pastor and for his family that you'll strengthen them at this time, bring healing, uh, relief, peace, and bring them back to us, Lord. We just thank you for all you're doing in, in the world around us. Praise you for your sovereignty. Lord, it's good to know in these turbulent times that you're in control. We praise you for that, Father. Help us to exalt your name in all that we do this morning. And uh, may your word come through on all I say, Father. Uh, help, help us to remember what, what you would have us remember. Help us to apply what your spirit would apply to our hearts in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the cries of the Reformation was, by faith alone, salvation by faith. I want to cover that this morning. What is the pathway? What's the roadmap to righteousness? If we want to be right with God and have God look upon us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, what roadmap do we use? It's interesting that one time... Somebody asked Jesus that question back in the book of Matthew, and Matthew records it. Here's the story. A young man came up to Jesus, and you can guess from his question that he probably came up with a certain swagger in his walk, certain self-confidence in his voice. It says, and someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I shall obtain life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, if you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, uh, which ones? You want to say, there's only, only ten. What, why would you ask that? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? What would you expect Jesus to say at that point? Believe in me. But instead, he says something that catches us off guard. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Margaret Craig lived in Sevierville, Tennessee, when I was a pastor there, and Margretta never married, and she lived out in a, 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 right on the edge of the Smoky Mountain Park in Wears Valley, if you're familiar with that area. She owned a little Greenbrier Lodge, which she ran year-round. 
She was the hostess and the owner. And she owned about three or 400 acres worth probably millions of dollars today of land that, that went up the mountain and joined the national park. Margareta loved Jesus. And one day she was reading this passage. And she said, I, she said, I really felt like God was telling me to sell everything I have and follow him. So she gave away all of her land to a ministry in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, evangelism ministry run by Matt Prince. Hundreds of acres of land, prime real estate, gave it away. A few days later, Matt Prince called her up and said, Margretta, I can't take this. I don't know what to do with it. And he gave it back to her. And Margretta said, I think God was just testing me to see if I was really willing to follow wherever he led. What's what's the path to righteousness? Does God call us to do that kind of thing on a daily basis? Well, the passage before us says that we're saved and justified by faith alone. Turn back with me to uh, Romans, where we were. Steve Brown, a PCA pastor down in the Miami area, one time said that if being righteous is a matter of keeping the law, his dog is the most righteous creature he knows. He said his dog lies in front of the fireplace and his dog has never committed adultery, never lied, never stolen, always keeps the Sabbath. He said, my dog is the most righteous critter there is. If that's the roadmap to righteousness... But, but this passage tells us that there's maybe something more we need to hear. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. But the first question that should come to mind is, why do we need to be made righteous? Uh, a friend of mine in Texas, uh, Becky DeGroat, was corresponding with someone on Facebook. And you know what that can be like. You can go all over the board on Facebook. And sometimes you have to delete what you write. At least I do. They were talking about some matter of politics. And Becky said, let me give you my perspective. She said, I believe that in this world, there's depravity all around us. And we need a savior. Well, that's straight out of Reformed theology. I think all of us would say, amen. But her friend wrote back and said, Becky, I I beg to disagree with you. I am not depraved. Do we really need a Savior? Are we really depraved? Part of Reformed theology is to say total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. What it means is every part of us is broken. In some way, every part of our lives falls short of the glory of God. And in its totality, in every part, we fall short of God's plan for us. It's interesting how the passage begins. But now, but now, apart from the law, the minute you see, but now, you have to say, well, what happened before? If I come in and say, but now I've decided to love my wife differently, you would say, wait a minute, what did you, what did you do yesterday? How did you love her then? but now indicates some kind of a change. So what happened before? 
What did Paul write before he said, but now a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law? Well, something else was revealed in chapter 1. Look back with me to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident with them because God made it evident to them. He goes on to say that since the beginning of the world, all of God's character has been evident to people. His, his holiness is evident. His beauty is evident. The whole process of, of action and consequence is evident. There's something within us that God has placed there because we're created in the image of God. If we do something wrong, before we ever come to Scripture and read that it's wrong, we know it. The Bible says that even those without the law, their heart bears witness to them that they've blown it. The minute we lie, we know we've done wrong. The minute we say a word that hurts somebody, we know we should have said it. Now, we can deaden that feeling. We can put it down. We can become hardened. But I think at the outset, we instinctively know that some things are just wrong. Paul makes that case in Romans and says, Those without the law as well as those who have the law, we're all, we're all under sin. And he says, if we read on down the passage in chapter 1, he says that because they did not acknowledge God to be God, verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. He says, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burdened in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, it's easy for evangelicals in our culture to stop there and say, yeah, that, that's what happens when you don't honor God in your culture. You have all kinds of depravity. But if we keep reading, we run into this in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved, there it is, depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, what are they? Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, slander, malice, strife, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. And he goes on to chapter 2 to say, so you're without excuse when you judge somebody if, if you do the same thing yourself. 
And he builds a case that all have sinned. Not just them out there. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. Not even one. And we definitely stand in need of a Savior. But now, he says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God's solution is to manifest now his righteousness. Now, was the wrath a contrast? So that the wrath was revealed, but now, but now grace is revealed. Sorry, McCartney. Or is wrath the context, contrast or context, that as God has shown his wrath towards sin, in that context now, we see his grace. We see his grace poured out. Now, how does this righteousness take place, and what is it? In the New American Standard that I read, it says the righteousness of God. New International says righteousness from God. The question of the passage is, is is Paul talking about the righteousness that God is? His character is revealed apart from the law. Or is he saying the righteousness that comes from God that's given to people, that's revealed. The imputed righteousness is revealed. I'm not sure it's an either or statement. I think it's both and. Because as the righteousness that belongs to God, that's his character, is revealed, a part of that process is the righteousness that comes to us through faith. Both happen, and both are included in the verse here. First of all, if, if you look at the righteousness that, that we receive, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're justified. Something happens in us where we're counted not guilty any longer. Over in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're counted as righteous. Because of what Christ did for us. Another passage that also deals with that is uh, Galatians, uh, the right place here. No, Philippians 3, 8, 8 through 10. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Paul talks about his background and then says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, to count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's no doubt that what Paul is talking about in part is a righteousness we receive that has nothing to do with keeping the law. It comes by faith, by grace. But in that process of making us righteous, of counting us as righteous, God displays his own righteousness. Notice how he says this in several ways back in Romans 3. In verse 25, it says, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. 
because he in the past he overlooked sin, but now he wants to be both just and the justifier of him who believes in Christ. God by nature is just. In Nahum chapter 1, it says, God will by no means let the guilty go free. God will punish sin. That's his nature. He is just. He's righteous. He'll never wink at sin and say, I think that doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I, I know you said some words that really hurt somebody, but don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's okay. I know you call somebody whatever, but don't worry about it. It's, it's okay. You, you, you ran into somebody and that's okay. Don't worry about it. God, God doesn't just wink at sin. When we're hurt by someone else's actions, we demand justice. One of the characteristics of God is he is a God of justice. And he shows his character of holiness, wrath towards sin. I was thinking about the verse we started with. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is displayed. What does it look like when God reveals his righteousness in the context of law? It looks like wrath. Because God punishes sin. He will no way let the guilty go unpunished. So the dilemma before God as he seeks to save a people for his own possession is how do you take the sinner and make him your child when the soul that sins shall die? Well, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to die. The penalty was paid. But it wasn't you and me that paid it. It was the Son of God that paid it. I couldn't help but draw a parallel with all that's happened this week. Could you imagine in the Senate hearing if the new Supreme Court judge were sitting there with their children behind us and one of the senators asked, Amy, if a murderer, if a murderer appeared before you on the bench and pled for his life, would you forgive him? And if so, and you want to be just, which of your children would you let die in his place? You know, that's absurd. <laughs> but that's what God did. We stood before him. Paul said, uh, Paul was a murderer who sought to put Christians to death. Paul was a murderer who stood before Jesus. And God said, you're forgiven. Because someone else paid your price. God was just. Sin was paid. The penalty was paid in full. The penalty for my sin and your sin was paid in full. He uses the word in the passage that the blood of Christ was a propitiation. It satisfied the demands of God's justice. Years ago, when I came out of seminary in the Dark Ages... I went to a conference in the denomination in which I was ordained, which is a liberal denomination. And at a missions conference, they were talking about all the good things missionaries were doing. And I raised my hand to the speaker, and this was at the national level. And I said, well, are missionaries still preaching the gospel? And the leader said, what, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, are, are they teaching that, that Christ died for our sins? We need to believe in him to be saved. And the leader said, 
What do you, what do you mean? That Jesus shed his blood for us. And the leader of the National Mission Agency said, we don't believe that blood stuff anymore. That's a pagan idea. Well, the Bible sure teaches it. The soul that sins shall die, and somebody died in my place, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead and now commands my faith. He was a propitiation in blood for my sin. Then God justified us. To justify means to pronounce not guilty. When I was little, we went to visit my cousins in Warner Robins, Georgia one time, and Kim and Davey were uh, about as mischievous as, as we were. Just before we got there, this was in the days of Zorro. Does anybody remember Zorro? Oh, he wore a mask. We should be very familiar with him. One of my cousins had run into the living room where a big picture window was, taken a crayon, and put a big Z all over the window. My aunt and uncle were so horrified that they tried to get a confession out of one of my cousins, and neither would confess to the big Z. So they sent them to the room, and they were in their rooms thinking about what they had done when we drove up. So what do the parents do? You, you can't just come out and say, well, you guys, don't worry about it. You, and you can't say, well, I, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. You can't justify them. Somebody has to confess. And so with their cousins in the driveway, one of my cousins finally said, I, I did it. But if we stand before God, he looks at us, and by faith and grace, he says, you're forgiven. And he separates our sin as far from us as the east is from the west, which is in infinity, and pronounces us not guilty. This week, I, I had to take a second look at Galatians, All right. because the verse wasn't there. I think it was in Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians. I have the wrong, wrong quote. I think it's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, isn't it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Well, what's the gift? I think for most of my life, I believe that faith is the gift. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that is a gift of God. But as I read the verse this week, I think it has a broader meaning than that. If you have your Bibles, look with me again there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. It's a gift, not as a result of works. Is faith not a result of works? Or is my salvation not a result of works? I think Paul has the whole process in view. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. His son to down a cross is the gift. Pronouncing me not guilty is a gift. And it's all through grace. All through grace. Apart from the law, nothing I could earn by faith alone. That leads us to the last point of the sermon. And we may get out a little bit early, early today. If we have need for righteousness and God provides it through the sacrifice of his son, how do we receive it? 
He's very clear in the passage. It's by faith alone. By trusting in Jesus. There's no other way. The nature of faith intrigues me. In Romans chapter 8, I saw another connection that I had never made before. I'm glad that at my age, we still see things in Scripture that God says, did you ever see that before? And you think, somehow I, I missed it. And we keep learning and growing no matter what age we are because God's not finished with us yet. Chapter 8, he's talking about the future of a Christian. In verse 24, he talks about us eagerly awaiting our adoption to sons, the redemption of our body, and says this, For in hope we have been saved. But hope for what is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? In other words, if it's standing in front of me, I don't hope for that. I've got it. What I hope for is what hadn't happened yet. What I can't see. If, If God makes a promise that hasn't occurred yet, I hope in that. I look forward to it. I I bank on it. I depend upon it. For hope that we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait for it. Now turn over to chapter Hebrews chapter 11. It's been called the gallery of faith. Listen Listen how Paul defines faith here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. He takes the same theme in Romans, and here it plays out in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Later on, down in verse 6, he'll say, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when we say we're saved by faith alone, what, what do we mean? What is this faith? Assurance of things hoped for? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not just praying a prayer, going through the motions, and saying, well, I prayed that prayer, so now I'm saved. Faith is, is, is more. Faith is hope. Faith is trust. Faith involves the whole person, not just an intellectual assent. In James, James writes that even the demons believe that God exists, but it doesn't do them any good. Faith is more than that. If you're going through chapter 11, verse 8, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to receive an inheritance. 11, by faith Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. He goes and he gives example after example of people who believed God, who trusted God and then acted on it. Faith always finds feet. Always. It has a result. That's why James can write, faith without without works is dead. In the Reformation, we say we're saved by faith alone. Many theologians say, but faith that saves is never alone. Because it always has consequences in our lives. It shows up the way we trust God the way we depend upon him, the way we put him above us. It's not all about us. It's all about him. And sometimes in our lives, that's, that's so difficult to do. It also shows up in a changed life. 
Justification, we talked about, is important because somebody had to pay for sin. Otherwise, God's not righteous. But there's another side of justification. What if God has you stand before him, or has me stand before him, and he says, you're not guilty. I absolve you of all your sin. You're justified. And then you go out and do the same thing all over again. Nothing changed within you. Just your legal standing before God changed. Is that what God has in store for us? Justification legally before his throne? Salvation is more than that. Justification also involves transformation. God causes us to be born again. We're not only counted as not guilty, he puts his spirit within us. He comes to dwell within us. We see approaching life from a different viewpoint than he ever did before. Turn over with me to Colossians chapter 3. This is where faith plays out in a believer's life, in one of the many passages. When we come to Christ and believe in him for salvation, we die with Christ and are raised with him in newness of life, Paul wrote in Romans. Then here he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who's our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So consider members of your body as dead to the flesh, sinful passions, and be alive to what God has in store for you. My challenge to you this morning is this. If you haven't yet believed in Christ and experienced salvation and transformation, I'd invite you today to place your faith in Christ. Not just to give an intellectual assent, but but know that he is the Son of God. He died on a cross. He paid the price for your sin. And God desires and will give you the faith to believe that so that he can pronounce you not guilty and cause you to be born again into his family. But if you are a believer and you're here this morning, maybe, maybe you're like me in some ways, or maybe I'm like you. When we go through times of life where we have a lot of stress or things going on, we fall back into old behaviors, old patterns. It's so easy to find the familiar ground in life. But faith calls us always to leave the past behind because it's forgiven It's paid for. Faith calls us to step into something new that God is doing in our life. God is changing us from glory to glory, it says, as he conforms us to the image of Christ. Let me invite you this week to see, to ask, how is God changing me? What is it he's calling me to be? How do I, by faith, take a step into that Simply following where Christ walks, where he's gone before, and where he now calls me to follow. Let's bow together and pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. 
I'm so thankful we're saved by faith and not by works because the law simply shows us our inability. The harder we try, sometimes the more we fail. But when we trust you, Father, you never forsake your word. Always do what you say. And you accept us as your dear children. Father, thank you for what you've done in our lives. We pray that you'll help us to simply follow where you lead now as a congregation, as your people, and Father's individuals. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.